Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. We've been studying through the book of Mark and we will continue to do so, but today we're going to press pause on that. We're going to go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Going on, as you, as you are finding the book of Ephesians chapter 1, I, I enjoyed the opportunity last weekend. I was away from you guys, and I always miss y'all when I'm away, but got an opportunity to go serve um, at Avon Park Lakes Baptist Church, one of our abide churches, and Pastor George was out in California at the SBC convention, and so I got to go minister to that body of believers and encourage them, and the Lord had been kind of prompting my heart a couple of weeks ago for us to have a different kind of conversation this morning, uh, just to remind us of kind of this this, this every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. I think somebody this morning needs to remind, uh, be reminded from the Word of God just how blessed they are because I'm going to bet that there is a lot of things that have happened in your life that you didn't want, didn't plan for, didn't ask for, or maybe you authored yourself but went off the rails and life's just tough. Let's call it what it is. It's called life. That's why it's not called heaven. It's hard. And we carry, you, you carried a lot of burdens in here with you this morning, I know. Uh, and I know that I carried some myself in here this morning. And I just want to re- give you a gospel reminder this weekend about just the richness and the fullness of the blessings that you have being a part of the family of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I recognize that throughout the many people that will join us this weekend for this conversation, not everybody's a follower of Jesus yet. Some of you may even be skeptics or outright rejectors. I get that. I want you to know, like, this is a safe place for you not to agree with me. Or a safe place for you to not be sure. I'm all right with that. My job when we get up here on the weekends is I'm going to teach you what the Word of God says. And then you have to do the work of reconciling that between you and God yourself. And so um, I hope that some of you that are not yet followers of Jesus, our prayer, I mean our mission, we, we, we lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ and one another. That's why we do things like groups ministry and vacation Bible school, kids camp, youth camps and Sunday services. It's all about leading people in a growing relationship with Jesus. And uh, that, that is our goal and our mission in your life. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you want to have a conversation about what that looks like or what some of the next steps are to take after today, then let's talk about that. You can catch up with me this morning while you're here. Uh, I can connect you with one of our pastors or leaders, or you can even call in this week and we'll talk more about it. But let's, let's read what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians just here in chapter 1. One of these days we'll study through the whole book together. So I'm not going to do as deep a dive today as what we will when we study it together. But I do want you to know some background of what's going on here. And these words in these first 14 verses are meant to be some of the most encouraging words in all of the Bible. That's why they were written. Problem is they have become some of the most controversial words in all of the Bible. You think the devil's kind of had a hand in that? Whispering lies into the body of Christ and something that the Apostle Paul meant to encourage the saints has actually been something we have used to divide ourselves and to be angry at one another and to argue and bicker about it. I'll point out what some of those things are as we go. We won't really be able to peel back all the layers of the onion today, but I really want you to see the reason why this was written and just how encouraging it really is for those that look at it through the lenses that it was meant to be looked at. 
And so the Apostle Paul says this. He's writing this letter to the Ephesians. It was just people that lived in a city called Ephesus. If you're new to the Bible and don't understand how this works, Ephesians isn't anything super spiritual. It's just he wrote it to people that lived in a city called Ephesus. So it's basically a letter to the Ephesians, to them. And he says, hey, guys, it's me, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'm writing this to the saints who are in Ephesus. Say saints. Just so you know, the saints who are in Ephesus are no more saintly than you are. This is a declaration that God has made over their life when they came into relationship with Jesus Christ. Like, do you know that, like, since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, every word in the word of God, like, at no, at no point ever, nowhere, not ever, are we ever referred to as sinners saved by grace? You realize that's not even in the Bible. I think we came up with that to make ourselves feel better because it was the good news of Jesus just seemed like a little bit too good to be true, so it made us feel a little better. Say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Almost as if to say, like, I recognize how undeserving I am of this, and it's been the grace of Jesus that rescued me. But God sees you totally different than that. He doesn't see you as a sinner saved by grace. And he never calls you a sinner saved by grace. As a matter of fact, since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, anyone who is a believer in Jesus is never referred to as a sinner ever throughout the rest of the scripture. You're given a new title and a new name, and it's saint. Now, you don't look saintly, you don't act saintly, you don't smell saintly, and if I interviewed your top five friends, you probably wouldn't pass the sainthood test. But I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm talking about what God has said about you. Who are you going to trust? Your own feelings or what the word of God from the mouth of God has said about you? He calls you saints. Saints aren't little statues that we see in really fancy churches. Sainthood was bestowed upon whosoever would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. You are declared by God as a saint. We're going to see throughout this conversation this morning exactly how all of that works. And he says, to the saints who are at Grace Bible, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, those of you that have given your life to the Lord Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us, bless who? Blessed who? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. How many spiritual blessings? Every daggone one of them. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved, capital B, he's talking about Jesus there. It's because of Jesus that he is able to bless us in this way. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins. Praise God for that. According to the richness of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all of his wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ Jesus. Who's this passage really about? And this is about Jesus, and we're just the beneficiaries of the life and ministry and work of Jesus. But that's really good news. And every spiritual blessing we have was made by him, it was given to us for him, it was offered to us through him, it's all because of Jesus that we get to enjoy what we get to enjoy. Every spiritual blessing that's been given to us in heavenly places, which he lavished on us in every spiritual, uh, in all of his wisdom and insight. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time that he would unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
He's going to bring redemption to all that stuff. That's good news. In him we have also obtained an inheritance. Say, I have been given an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, Grace Bible, when you heard the word of truth, the good news gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, Jesus, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Boy, that's some really good news. Listen, church people fight over this passage all the time. Church splits happen over this passage all the time. But I want you to know why it was written so that we can really enjoy why it was written today. We can split hairs some other time, and we will. But for the point this morning, I want you to know who it was written to and why this was written. Now, as the Apostle Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus, like, Ephesus had really started to go off the rails. Ephesus, just so you know, it was a tourist trap kind of town, like that place that I avoid, like the plague called Orlando. People would travel from all over the known world to come to Ephesus, and the main reason why, they didn't have Disney World, but they had the Temple of Artemis, which is probably more commonly known as Diana, the goddess Diana. Her temple was there. So pagan worshipers from all over the known world would travel to Ephesus to bring their pagan worship there. Now, uh, what happens, though, is if you, had a, if you were a vendor and you set up a lemonade stand outside of the Temple of Diana, like you could make a fortune. I mean, people are traveling through there by droves constantly. Now, what has happened, though, when we get to the point of reading about the book of Ephesus, you can learn this through the book of Acts, is the Apostle Paul and other Christians went and started going and making disciples. They started ministering to people around the table. They started sharing the good news of Jesus. And guess what happens to a thriving city whose economy is based on the temple of Diana when people start believing in Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ starts growing? All of a sudden, people don't want goddess Diana skateboards and earrings and cup holders anymore. And so Ephesus started to slip into an economic recession because of the gospel. It was so bad, in fact, you can read in Acts chapter 19 that some of the vendors actually started a riot. And the Apostle Paul, of course, gets blamed for it because he was the one that brought the gospel of Jesus here and his followers brought it here in the first place. They're the cause of this economic recession. So Paul gets thrown into prison. Now, since Paul was a Roman citizen, he didn't get thrown into the dungeon of a Roman prison. If you're a Roman citizen... With an offense like that, he would have been put on house arrest. Now, house arrest for them ain't like house arrest for us. I know some of y'all been on house arrest. Some of y'all probably on house arrest this morning. House arrest for them, all right, was a little different. You, you didn't get this cool little anklet that you could cover up with your jeans and the little cell phone thing that, you, you know, that they can contact you, but you can't call anybody on, but it's like your GPS tracker, but you can still go to work. Some of you can go to church. House arrest for them is they were literally chained up to a Roman guard around the clock. That's how it worked. You think God can't use you in your current set of circumstances? The Apostle Paul was sitting there chained up to a Roman guard around the clock, and he was just writing encouragement letters like to the people of Ephesus that totally transformed the body of Christ for centuries to come. The Lord can use you right where you're at. Now, interestingly enough, the type of Roman guard that would have been chained up to Paul, like some of you that have studied the course of history, you would know like, the, the main reason for the, the collapse of the Roman Empire is they just got too big too fast. 
they were expanding their territory so rapidly. And part of, the, part of the way that they were doing that is when they would go fight another nation and they would defeat this other nation, they would give the surviving fighting men from that other nation the opportunity to join the Roman army. I mean, how else do you build your military fast enough? So you as an outsider, if you got defeated by Rome as a man, you'd have the opportunity to join the Roman army so that your family could have protection, not a bad idea, and so that you could have your needs met. But now those guys that would have joined the Roman army from a neighboring country, they would have never been offered positions where they could grow and be promoted to, to better roles and make more money. And believe it or not, they would not have even allowed those guys to fight on the front lines. Reason being is, is if you joined the Roman army and then Rome went to war with some of your cousins, there's a good chance that you would turn around and start fighting against Rome. So they would actually give you the jobs that nobody else wanted. They would put you in jobs where they could keep an eye on you while you were keeping an eye on someone else, a.k.a. house arrest. So this guy that's chained up to the Apostle Paul, like, he wasn't Roman by birth. He doesn't want to be Roman. He's lost a war. His life has been devastated in every kind of way. And here he is chained up to, to the Apostle Paul with no opportunity awaiting him in life. And the Apostle Paul, I'm sure, would often look at him and say, like, hey, man, I can tell you're a Roman soldier. But you definitely ain't Roman, I can tell by your nose. How's that going for you? That was kind of the red button topic for those guys. They would go on to rant about how, man, I don't feel totally Roman, nor do I feel totally free. Making half wages, half benefits, no opportunity for any real growth in my life. It was a miserable existence. But you can imagine why Paul is chained up to these guys 24-7, why the book of Ephesians has so much military language. This is why Paul, looking at this Roman soldier as he's writing in Ephesians 6, oh, we have the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. He's just imagining this as he's looking at this Roman soldier and writing it down. Now, the issue that the Roman soldier was confronted with was not all too unlike what was happening in the world of Christendom either. It was difficult um, to be a Christ follower at that particular point in history, particularly if you were a Gentile. I'm just curious, were any of y'all here this morning legitimately born in Jewish families? And I'm not talking about people who chose Judaism because they wanted to be a part of the religion. I'm talking about born into Judaism, like you have Jewish blood running through your veins. Like anybody like legit Jew like that up in here this morning? Okay, we've got a couple of you. That would make the rest of y'all Gentiles. All right, according to the scripture, you're referred to as Gentiles, which is Bible language for you're an outsider. You're outside the family of God, outside the covenant promise of God. You're just outside Gentiles. That would be the rest of us. Now, for Jews who believed that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah of God, Christianity was not a new religion for them. Christianity for a Jew who believed that Jesus was in fact the one that the prophets spoke of in the Old Covenant, for those Jews, Christianity was just the right next step in their Jewish faith, not some brand new religion. This was the Messiah that God had promised, so I'm just trusting God that this was him, and so I step, make the next step in the Jewish faith, and now I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian. For them, it wasn't a brand new religion, but they really had a hard time with the fact that Gentiles, like most of you and me, were being invited into the family of God by simply believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ and confessing that he was Lord and God raised him from the dead, that was it? Jews really struggle with this because they're like, hey, wait a minute. Jesus is our Messiah. 
How can somebody become a Christ follower without becoming Jewish first? There was actually a big debate about this in Acts chapter 15. You can read about it for yourself where the the new covenant elders of the church had to come together and kind of hash this out. They're like, well, good point. I mean, do you have to be Jewish in order to become Christian? And the elders of the new covenant church decided all the way back in Acts 15, no, we, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in him alone. That's good news for us, Grace Bible. Whoo, that's good news. I would have made a horrible Jew. I'm not good at keeping all them rules. So Jews had a hard time with what was going on with Gentiles joining the family of God. But imagine being Gentile. You didn't really have any practice doing the church thing. You were as far from godly as you could be. You were the one who took your family vacation to Ephesus to make pagan offerings to Diana. Like, you, you really, even though you believed in Jesus, like, you felt like an outsider looking in. You would oftentimes have to sit in the back of the worship services. It was the Jewish Christians who kind of ran everything because they had all the practice. They would oftentimes remind you that you weren't a part of ancient Israel. You, you aren't a part of the family of God. You, you got adopted in later. And as a, as a Gentile, you felt a lot like that Roman soldier. You knew that you believed in Jesus, but you didn't totally feel a part of the family of God at all. That's why the book of Ephesians was written. It was written to Gentiles who felt like outsiders looking in, to remind them of the covenant promises that they have in Christ Jesus and to remind them the big picture that God wasn't your idea, man. You were God's idea. He came chasing after you. He's crazy about you. He, he fell so deeply in love with you long before you even ever knew he was worth loving back. And that's good news. I bet somebody this morning probably feels like an outsider looking in even here. Like you showed up this morning, maybe your first time ever in church, or maybe you're just coming back to church. You're thinking, man, I've never even heard these songs. Half of what y'all have already said, I don't even understand what you're talking about. You, you, you don't even know what systematic theology is. You don't have a robust explanation of the process of justification. You don't even know what justification means. You didn't even know you were supposed to know it. And you felt like an outsider looking in. Ephesians is written to you to remind you that you've been God's idea for a long time and he's madly in love with you. And if you trust in Jesus and his finished work, and for those of you that already have, you have been blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You're not an outsider looking in. You've been writing the crosshairs of the love of God for a long time. And this is how he says it to us. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're like, well, what, what are the blessings? Like, I want to know. And he goes on to tell us, verse 4, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Say, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. You say that. To be holy and blameless. Yeah, just so you know, God's rescue mission for us didn't start after he created all things and Adam and Eve dropped the ball. God wasn't sitting in heaven thinking, oh, myself. What am I going to do? Did y'all catch that joke? That was, a, that, was a, that was a good knee slapper. Oh, my God. Oh, myself. You get that? I planned that. Oh, myself. What are we going to do? Jesus, you're up. You're going to have to fix this. That ain't how it went down at all. Before the foundation of the world was even laid, he had chose us to be holy and blameless in him. In other words, he had come up with a redemption strategy long before he even wrote the creation story. Who's crazy about you? 
And he had a master strategy all along that we would be chosen to be holy and blameless in him. Say, I'm holy and blameless. Much like your sainthood, you don't look holy and blameless. You sure don't act holy and blameless. But I'm not here to talk about your feelings this morning. I'm here to talk about what the word of God has declared over you through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you have been declared as holy and blameless before God. You know what that tells me? That when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, he's not saying that at that point then we finally get the option of being able to tell God when we have sinned so that he will forgive us. No, because of what Jesus Christ has done and our belief in that finished work, we have been forgiven, period. It's not this ongoing transaction of, oh, God, I messed up. Please forgive me. He says, you have been forgiven 2,000 years ago. You received the forgiveness when you trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have now been made holy and blameless. He didn't tell us this so that once we became a Christian, we would say, okay, well, now is I finally get to earn a more righteous status before God now that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This is him telling us when you became a follower of Jesus Christ and trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that meant for you, that you were made righteous, period, once and for all, for all time. This takes me back to one of my favorite verses in the scripture. I go there often. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you hear me quote this all the time. This says, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me break that down for you a little bit further, just in case you're not picking up what I'm putting down here. Jesus, who had never sinned, took on all of our sin, so that we who were never righteous could take on all of his righteousness. You think this is some good news or what? Let me break that down for you just a little bit further, just in case you ain't picking up what I'm putting down. God treated Jesus like we deserved so that he could treat us like Jesus deserved. That's what that verse means. This is good news. And he decided that this is how it was going to go down long before the foundations of the world. That you would be made holy and blameless by the finished work of Jesus and your trust in him as Lord and King. Doesn't mean you'd feel like it. Doesn't mean you'd always act like it. But when he beholds you, He sees the holiness and the blamelessness of his son because you made a great exchange. His righteousness for our sin. That's good news. Let let me prove to you just how holy God God believes that you are. I don't know if you trust you more than God, but I recommend against that. God is so convinced that you have been now made, been, been, hold on a sec. That you have now been made holy and blameless. He is so convinced of it, in fact, that we learn one place, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, that as Jesus was hanging on the cross and he breathed his last breath, and with a cry, he gave up his spirit. Something happened very powerfully and supernaturally in Jerusalem that day. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Let me explain that just a little bit. I think we would all agree that the, like the legit presence of God only dwells in the holiest of places. We're talking about the legit presence of God. All the people of ancient Israel understood that. They recognized that God's holiness was lethal to a sinful world. Matter of fact, because God had told them his holiness was lethal to a sinful world. If you remember back in Exodus 33, Moses was on top of Mount Sinai and he said, Lord, let me see you. Let me see your glory, like the fullness of it. And God's like, that ain't going to work because if you behold my face, it will kill you. 
So God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and covered up Moses with his hand. And God said, when I walk by, I'll move my hand and you can behold the backside of my glory. They knew that the holiness of God was lethal to sinful humanity. So much so, in fact, that the holiness of God, the, the presence of God only dwelled in the holiest of places. And so in the innermost courts of the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the presence of God dwelled. You and I weren't allowed to go in there. They had a veil over the temple, over the Holy of Holies, so that you and I didn't accidentally stumble in there. It'd be lethal to us. There was only one guy who was allowed to go in there once a year. It was the great high priest. He would have to go through extensive ritual cleansing of his body and his life and his sins before he went into the holiness of God so that he could make an offering on behalf of all of our sins. Now, just in case he missed one of his own sins, they would tie a rope to his ankle when he went in there just in case the holiness of God killed him, they could drag him out. The holiness of God is lethal to sinful humanity. That's why he had to protect us from it. But when Jesus died on the cross and breathed his last breath and the penalty for sin was paid for, for whosoever would believe in him, God reached down from heaven and tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom. This couldn't have been done by man. It it would take 200 grown men to take the veil of the temple out to be cleaned. And it would take 300 grown men to put it back because it was damp and even heavier. And God reached out of heaven when Jesus breathed his last breath and paid it all. And he ripped the veil of the temple from top to bottom in two. He was declaring to the world that it was moving day for him. He was no longer going to dwell in temples made by human hands, but he was now going to take up residence in a new temple that he was building for himself and us. You don't think God doesn't think you're holy when he looks at you? He wouldn't have moved in if he had not made you holy first. The fact that the Spirit of God dwells within every believer of Jesus Christ is a bold declaration from God himself just to prove it. I'm going to move up into you. You are now the holiest place where I dwell. That's good news. And by the way, he chose that to happen long before the foundations of the world. Not only that, but he goes on to tell us in love he predestined us for adoption. Say, I've been predestined for adoption. I know some of y'all cringe saying that. Like you read it in your Bible and you can't even get the word out of your mouth. You know what? Christians argue over that word a lot. We'll talk about that some other day when we have some time. But like, here's the point. Um, I know while some Christ followers in here, this is all you like to talk about is this P word, predestination. Um, and some Christ followers in here feel like that's like a holy cuss word. Like you just don't talk about that. You don't say that. Kind of makes you want to throw up a little bit in your mouth. Can you imagine how good, how much good news that would have been to a Gentile who felt like an outsider looking in? To hear that not only have they been brought into the family of God, but he foreordained it. He predestined them for this adoption. They were his idea. He wasn't their idea. Isn't that good news for an outsider looking in to hear that finally, like, as you've been told by like other Jews that you're going to church with that they're Christians, like, oh man, you, you know, you're, you're kind of an afterthought. You know what I'm saying? You weren't an afterthought. Before the foundations of the world, 
in his foreknowledge, he predestined you for this adoption. Man, that's really good news. What a bold declaration of his love for us. That you aren't, as a Gentile, you're not an outsider looking in. You weren't an afterthought. You weren't just the result of the chips falling a certain way on the timeline of history that you, by chance, just happened to get invited in thanks to Jesus. He's saying, I figured this out long before it ever happened. This was my plan. You've been in the crosshairs of the love of God long before you even knew he was worthy of loving. What's crazy about you? This wasn't meant to be some timeless debate. As a matter of fact, Paul didn't write these words to send the church reeling into a timeless debate that we split churches over now. He actually wrote this to bring people together in the hope that they have in Jesus. So why in the world do we use it to split each other up? To pick a side. Obviously, whoever uses it as a sword to wield instead of an invitation to give is wielding a sort of a bad understanding of what the Word of God says. This was never meant to divide us. It was meant to bring us together with a united hope of what Jesus has done for us, that we have been predestined for adoption. This was his crazy idea all along. And you got caught up in the crosshairs of the love of God for you. Man, that's good news. That's good news. And he goes on to tell us not only that, verse 7, the other spiritual blessings that you have is that in him we have redemption through his blood. Say, I've been redeemed. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. Man, that is really, really good news to me. I don't know about you. That you, yes, you, even you, could have your sins paid for. There was a, there's a bill so high in your life, if you don't know Jesus as Lord, like the bill of your sin in your life is so high, you will never be able to pay it. It just won't happen. It already exceeds your ability to outwork it with righteousness. That's why heaven's not a place where nice people go. It's a place where saved people go. People who were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's really churchy language to say Jesus paid it all when he hung on that cross and poured out his blood for us. God demanded there be a blood sacrifice. Every blood sacrifice up to that point was insufficient. Everyone made by the high priest was insufficient until our great high priest Jesus showed up as the lamb who was a perfect sacrifice to pay for all the sins for whosoever would believe, past, present, and future. That's some really good news right there. We oftentimes talk about it, though, in redemption as if, and and this is a right and good way to talk about it. I think it's, it's within the scope of decent theology is, you know, we had a bill that we couldn't pay, and so Jesus paid it all, which is true, and that's great. Tell the story just like that. That's fine. But the word that's being used here in their language, actually it translates into our language a little bit more acutely than just redeemed. It's the word ransomed. We just sang about it, that we were ransomed by his blood. You you know what it means to pay a ransom, right? It means that you were so in love with something, so enamored by it, that when someone took it for you, you didn't even want to risk trying to take it back. You actually offered to pay top dollar the highest price in order to buy back something that was already yours that someone else took from you. That's what a ransom is, ain't it? This declaration of Jesus paying for our sins, oh, what love, is not just him paying it all for us. It's him buying back something that was already his to begin with. You must really love something to do that, to not just let it go. He's buying it back at the highest price. Listen, Grace Bible, according to the book of Genesis, 
you were made in the image of God. According to Psalm chapter 139, he is the one that knit you together in your mother's womb. He is the one that breathed the breath of life in you. It's his breath in your lungs. It is he that knows before you stand up and before you sit down. It is he that perceives all your thoughts from afar. It is he that has all of the days of your life ordered and numbered. It is he that knows every word you're going to say even before it hits your tongue. And he made you for his glory, in his image, for his purposes. You were his. And then you were born into sin. You you were born into a fallen world so saturated for sin that sin was born in you. Nobody had to teach you how to be bad. You do that all by yourself. You've been trying your whole life to figure out how to be good. You don't believe me that we're born bad? Go volunteer in the preschool department. You were born into sin. Your soul saturated with it. You couldn't help but be bad. Even before you knew it, you were all about you. Throughout our whole lives, we have continued to sin. There was a disease that's deep within our bones. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it was the prince of the power of the air. It took nothing for the rascally old devil himself to lure us away. James refers to it as our own idiosyncrasies that lure us away. What tempts you doesn't tempt me. What tempts me may not tempt you. But it's like, it didn't take, devil don't even have to get out of bed in the morning to make me sin. I'll do that all by myself. So Jesus redeemed us by paying the ransom. He showed up to buy back what was already his, and he paid the highest price available because it was worth it to him. He poured out his blood and his life that we might be set free, that we might be ransomed back to him. Oh, what love that is. Grace Bible, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. That's really, really good news for us. Not only that, he says in verse 10, He also has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, to redeem all things, things in heaven and things on earth under him. In other words, he didn't just come to pay a ransom and redeem us. He's going to redeem this whole broken mess. Every crooked path made straight, every sad thing coming untrue, every deferred hope finally realized. That's why Jesus told us in Revelation 21, Behold, there is coming a day where I will wipe every tear away. That'll be good. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. I'm going to fix all the broken stuff. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He goes on in verse 11 to say, we also have obtained an inheritance. Say, I've been given an inheritance. I don't know if any of you stand to acquire an inheritance in your life. I probably don't. And I have told my family that if all you have to leave behind for me is debt, I will deny having ever known you. All right? Not interested. Some of y'all might have an inheritance. You might got an inheritance. But you have been given an inheritance in heavenly places that even death can't take away from you. Man, that's good news. Inheritance that in Christ Jesus, the best is always still yet to come. When we've been there 10,000 years, the best will still be yet to come. When we've been there 10 billion years from now, the best will still be yet to come. Because of this inheritance that we've been given in Christ Jesus, and he goes on to say, I love this, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, 
You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You know what a guarantee, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance for us? That we've been marked with the seal of the presence of the Holy Spirit when God moved out of the temple and moved up into you? That was marking you with the seal of himself to guarantee your inheritance. In other words, to guarantee it means two things right here. It means that it's the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within you that is going to preserve and to keep what has already been given to you. That's how he guarantees it until the day we receive it. In other words, let me explain that to you. It's the good news that your behavior today and tomorrow and the rise and fall of your behavior throughout your life and when you have those good seasons and those dark seasons, the guarantee of your inheritance doesn't come and go based on your bad performance because it has been sealed by the Holy Spirit and he is the keeper of it. He is the one that sustains and secures that salvation that has been offered to you through Christ Jesus. But also that the seal would guarantee it's like the royal seal stamping an envelope. It's a declaration that this one, sure enough, is bona fide mine. You've been marked with the seal. It verifies that you are his, that you have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, that you have been made holy, that you have been declared as a saint, that you are now blameless and righteous before the face of God, and you have been marked with that seal as a guarantee that that work has been done in your life. This is really good news. This, this is, there's so much about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that is kind of the rest of the gospel. It's bigger than just Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we believe in that so we get our sins forgiven and one day we get to go to heaven. That's some of the best parts of the good news, but that's just a small part of the good news. There's now a Holy Spirit that dwells within you, marking you with a heavenly seal, guaranteeing your inheritance. Really, the, the, the presence of God now living up inside of you. You know what that tells me? Even though you ran out of patience with that guy a, a week ago, that the patient one himself lives up inside of you, and his power is enough to run an extra mile in this hard race with that dude. You know what that also tells me? You're about to have to have a hard conversation this week or go through a tough thing. And you've realized, man, I don't have the wisdom or the wherewithal to do this well. Good news for you is the Holy Spirit now lives up inside of you. The wise one himself took up residence in you. And so your job isn't to figure out how to be the wise one. Your job is to learn how to let the wise one rule. This is why Paul told us in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He didn't say ask for more peace. He says let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You know why? Because the peaceful one already dwells within you. Our job is making disciples. We're learning how to let. He's already up in there. Surely, Galatians 2.20, Grace Bible, you have been crucified with Christ, and it is you who no longer live, but it is Christ who lives within you. The real work of discipleship is learning how to let, learning how to yield. Learning how to allow the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within you to live his life through you. Truly, it's called the fruit of the Spirit because it is the fruit of the Spirit. Not you on your best days. Get it? All of this big picture of you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is the reason why we, the Apostle Paul tells in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for these light and momentary troubles that you're experiencing, 
is achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let me summarize, let me say that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, For these light and momentary, I know they feel heavy. I know they're devastating. I know you don't always know what to do about it. I know in our little fragile bodies it crushes us, some of the stuff we go through. But Paul tells us it's because of all these blessings that we have in Christ Jesus that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, hang on, my friends. The best is still yet to come. It's going to be totally worth it even though it don't feel like it yet. Hang on now. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, fix your eyes on things above, not on the things of the earth below. This is why Jesus told us in John 10, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Man, he wasn't talking about material stuff that the world offers. The world is designed to fail you. It was designed to disappoint you at every turn. Literally, like one of the big goals God has for you in your life is that you come to the end of your rope, sitting there, standing there saying, man, this place is terrible. I can't get enough stuff. My relationships are tattered. I'm so dissatisfied with this thing. He wants you to get to that place because he wants you to find that there is a satisfier and his name is Jesus. He wants you to know that you have a greater hope and a greater promise and a greater inheritance and the best things are still yet to come for those that will trust in him. Now he leaves you here, even after we realize that, because we need to go invite other people into this good news story so that they, at the end of their rope, can realize they need to pick up his rope. They need to join the family of God and join these incredible spiritual blessings that we get to enjoy in Christ Jesus. This, this is why we are told in Romans chapter 8 that we have been made co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Co-heirs with the king of all kings. You get that? What if you went home today and you opened up your mailbox and there was an envelope marked with the seal of the Queen of England? Who I ain't say she's going soon, but she ain't, it ain't going to be a long time. You pop that bad boy open. You read the letter. And they're like, hey, uh, this is the, the royal people from England and we're really sorry. But we, um, we got the family bloodline a little messed up just a few generations ago, and we just realized after going to you, me, and Dupree, or whatever that website is, familyandme.com23 or whatever, we just realized that you are actually, when she kicks the bucket, you're actually next. You are the heir to the throne of England. You know what that would do for you? Like when you walk out today and realize you have a flat tire waiting on you right now, you're going to walk up there, you're going to see that flat tire, and you ain't going to care because what you stand to inherit is far greater. Heck, you'll probably just leave your truck there and just walk home, telling everybody on the way this inheritance that you have awaiting for you. How much more so is the kingdom of heaven than a kingdom that earth has? And that's been promised to you as co-heirs in Christ Jesus. And you have a Holy Spirit guaranteeing that inheritance for those of you that believe and trust in him as Lord. And that's really good news. So I guess that leaves the question for those of you that do not believe yet, or if you've kind of fallen into the skeptic or outright rejector category, 
My question for you is, has the Lord now turned on the light of your heart that you might have heard this now for the first time and been transformed by it? Do you believe it? Do you believe in the finished work that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, God rose him from the grave three days later, and now all of this is true for those who are in Christ who believe in him? This is available for you too. If you're not a believer yet, we'd love the opportunity to talk with you about that after the service today. You can find myself, Cameron, any one of our other pastors or staff. We'd love to have that conversation with you. But hey, Grace Bible, for those of you that are in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In other words, you are too blessed to be stressed right now, brother. That which awaits you is greater than you could ever ask or imagine. It's got your name written all over it. And it's been sealed as a guarantee by the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Father, I thank you for these group of folks. I thank you for your work in us. I thank you for your patience with us. I, I am, on the surface, I'm far from holy and blameless and righteous and forgiven and filled with your Holy Spirit. But God, I know that you have declared those things are true of me, Father. So help me learn to walk in that which is true. Help me to learn to let, learn to yield. Father, have your way in us. We are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.